Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I am so glad that you're here. This week, today, we are going to talk about dealing with depression and family obligations. We're also going to talk about how to deal with having past suicidal thoughts or ideations or even attempts on our permanent record. Also, we're going to talk about how to or why, really, when we go home, sometimes we can revert back to a younger version of ourselves and why that happens. Then we're also going to talk about anxiety and why that can cause us to regress to a younger age and why positive emotions can be hard to accept and process. And finally, I'm going to discuss how emotional neglect can affect us when we get older. So starting off, let's jump into depression and family obligations. And this is question number one. It says, hi, Katie, I'm a 25-year-old male and an HSP. HSP is a highly sensitive person. It says, I've been struggling with depression the last three years of university. As much as I would like to continue my studies, it's becoming increasingly difficult to focus on anything. Despite my best efforts to concentrate on schoolwork, I experience mental blocks that persistently cloud my mind. I've talked with the school therapist without much progress. I haven't been able to fully open up and express how I'm feeling. Then my father unexpe- unexpectedly passed away from a heart attack. I'm so sorry. I've been obligated to step up from working part-time to full-time at the family business. I feel like I'm a slave to obligation. I'm burned out most of the time and no longer experience interest or enjoyment in anything. The only thing that brings me solace right now is taking long walks at night by myself. Only then do I feel comfortable enough to cry. I think about the things I'm missing out on in life and the times that I'll never get back, the college experience I've desperately desired, the things that I'll experience uh, that I'll experience that my father will never see, and the unspoken words that we can never share. I'm not sure how much more I can take. How can I learn to open up to my therapist without triggering my fawning response? Oh, interesting. I've never truly opened up to anyone. Thanks for all the work you do for the community. Your videos are what gave me hope. Oh, I'm so glad I could be there when you needed. Now there is an add-on to this, but let's just dive in. There, when we have to step up, right? You said that your dad unexpectedly passed away. And so now you have to work full-time at the family business. I understand obligation. I understand family expectations. I also understand the need for you to be your own person and all of this pressure and kind of what I would call not necessarily just cognitive dissonance, but but kind of more of just disagreeing or competing interests, right? You want to have an, an independent experience. You want to go to school. You want to be able to focus on your schoolwork and become your own person. But then you also don't want to let your family down. And both of those things can be equally important to us. There might be one that's a little bit more important, but the guilt maybe of not um, doing what your family wants or the guilt of, I don't know, not meeting your full potential in school. You know, there could be a lot of different reasons that this can be stressful for us. So I feel you there and I understand where that's coming from. And I want you to know that your response and your reaction to all this is incredibly normal. Now, the question that you actually asked within this is, How do I learn to open up to my therapist without triggering my fawning response? The truth is, can we talk first with our therapist about this difficulty? I think we often want to focus on the the way to quote unquote fix the problem. Like, oh, I can't talk to my therapist. Then I need to figure out how to talk to my therapist. And I understand we want that to get better. But sometimes in order for it to get better, we have to talk around it. Because talking directly at it, trying to open up is too overwhelming right? We think it's going to trigger our fawning response. And if anybody doesn't know what the fawn response is, it's under the fight, flight, and freeze. The fourth one is called fawning. And it's when we kind of, 
It's almost like what it sounds like. We extremely people please. We fawn over someone else in order to, it's really protective. It starts out of a, it's a part of our stress response. And we fawn in part to hopefully prevent abuse or harm from continuing to happen, right? So we try to please someone very like over the top, hoping that then they won't hurt us anymore. So if we're worried that's going to happen, can we first just start talking to our therapist about your difficulty opening up? And that sometimes you think it turns you into a people pleaser if you express how you really feel. Maybe that's where we try to start. I know even that might be difficult, but if we talk about the problem itself and not trying to fix it, that can sometimes be a way in. And that can also give us some time to get comfortable with our therapist and to figure out how to share that kind of stuff and all that comes along with opening up in therapy because it can be really uh, triggering. It can make us feel really vulnerable. It can be really hard. So be patient with yourself. Now, the one big piece here for me that I know this isn't what you asked, but I do think it could behoove you to reach out and find a psychiatrist in your area, maybe through school, maybe in your neighborhood or around school so you can go to them um, more easily and have access to them. Maybe it's remote and you can do it over, you know, like, like a Zoom call. Because the reason I mentioned a psychiatrist is because of this intense the intense symptoms of depression that are really holding you back. And that's the reason that, you know, you have these mental blocks that cloud your mind. Um, you're feeling really burnt out. You aren't enjoying the things you used to enjoy. There's a ton of these symptoms up, 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 up. And not even, um, you know, not being able to cry unless you're walking alone by yourself at night. All of this makes me believe that we wouldn't, it'd be helpful for us to consider taking an antidepressant or some other medication that a psychiatrist would assess and recommend for us only because we're drowning in those symptoms. I know people don't always want to take medication and there's kind of a stigma, not only with having depression, but then taking medication for depression. But I'm here to tell you that medication for our mental health is just like medication for anything else. If you had a cold and a doctor prescribed you an antibiotic, you would take it. You have depression. If your psychiatrist prescribes an antidepressant, then we should probably take it. Now, just make sure you have all of your questions about it ready to go, like whether it's on your phone, in your notes, or you think about it ahead of time, write it down. Let's make sure we ask all of the questions before just accepting a prescription. But I would want you to look into that because we're drowning in those symptoms. And even though therapy can be incredibly beneficial, if we can't participate in it because we are so depressed, then we're going to need something to help us out. Because a lot of my depressed patients over the years, they'll come to see me and they'll have all these issues with things that are going on and I'll give them homework to try. I'm like, hey, could you try doing some deep breathing? Could you try journaling about this, that, or the other? Could you try tracking a couple of these repetitive thoughts you have about yourself and your situation? Could you try to shower four times this week or whatever, right? We set these goals and they can't do any of them because their depression's too heavy. It's too much. When we're depressed, it often like just doing anything in life can feel like too much or just like we're white knuckling it, like barely getting to school, barely getting to work, barely doing what we need to do. And so to add more to that is going to feel really overwhelming. So that's why I think medication could be beneficial to you. And opening up to your therapist without triggering the fawning response is really about doing it at a pace that feels good for you. Because the reason our fawn response gets triggered is because we feel like we're under threat. Now, there's going to be a little push-pull with this. You probably will go into fawning, but that does it's not a bad thing. We just have to t let her know about it up front. Let your therapist know this happens because the fawn response is just protective. And sharing in therapy is going to make us feel a little bit vulnerable, and we're going to be uncomfortable with that, and then we're going to fawn. It's okay. It's just part of our process. 
Just speak up about it, make her aware, and we'll work through it. Okay. Now there was a comment on this as, as an add-on, how is it possible to set boundaries with family obligations? I have to help my parents and uncles taking care of my grandma since I was a child because she cannot stay alone anymore due to dementia. I study at uni at the same time, but my uncles always want me to do the grocery shopping for her and with her and the doctor's appointments and all of that while they have no other obligations. And it leaves me just burnt out because I have a lot of, a lot less time for uni work and hardly no time for myself. My family thinks that uni isn't hard and a lot of, oh, isn't hard work, but a lot of free time. Okay. Well, couple thoughts. Now, first thought is that we can say no. That's a boundary. Remember, boundaries aren't uh, requests that we're going to put in for other people. We're not going to tell them, hey, stop asking me to do all this stuff or hey, can you take grandma instead? We, those are requests and we can put in a request, but we can't control other people and we can't make them do anything. Therefore, the boundaries are what we're going to do. Now, we can communicate those and I think it's best for us to at least try communicating them first. And that would be, you know, um, I can't keep taking grandma to all of these things because I have a lot of homework at university. So if you keep asking me, I'm, I'm not going to be available. Okay. That's a boundary. And then upholding the boundary would be that when they do ask you, you say, remember, I have, I have tons of work at uni. I can't. And we hold it. We say no. Now, I know for a lot of us that feels impossible. And I do find this extreme discomfort and potential dysregulation when we go against what's expected in our family. And expected can come from a lot of spaces. It could come from the fact that we, um, our role has always been this. So it sh so inevitably, I guess, without confronting it or changing it, it's just going to continue and always be the same. We can also hit a lot of roadblocks because the family dance that we've, we're used to and this song that we know, you know, is so familiar that we do it as well, right? It's like they have expectations. Like I said before, there's assumptions about what your role is going to be and your role's always been that. And then we're so comfortable in that role that we perpetuate it. And when we try to go against it, it's going to feel really unnatural. It's going to feel like we're tripping over our feet. We don't know the moves to this dance. We don't know the song. Um, we don't know what our role is when we're not filling that other one. And so it'll be easy for us to break those boundaries that we have set. That's why it's really hard with family because we've been doing this probably for a long time. And so be patient with yourself. Show yourself a little compassion. And let's not do all or nothing. Okay, meaning that when you're placing these boundaries with your family, let's pick one thing we're going to say no to this week. And we hold that and we say no, even though it's uncomfortable. We sit in it. We tell them we can't. We have too much homework or we go to the library. So we're not even home for that. We told them no. And then we're not there. I want you to do that once. And the reason I say just once is because if we try to do it all or nothing, if we try to say, I'm not going to help out at all, that's actually not the goal. The The goal is that you need time for university, you need time for yourself, and they're not doing anything. And that, frankly, we don't like this setup. We don't like the situation and it's not fair. So we have to say no when we need to say no. And if you have finals coming up, you're going to say, I don't have time, I have to study. And then you're not going to give into it. You're going to say, I don't have time, I can't. And you either won't be home, maybe we'll be at the library, like I said, or when they come and they're like, wait, we, you need to take grandma now. You can be like, I can't, I told you, I can't. And we're just going to have to hold that. And that discomfort you're going to experience for those reasons. Like I said, it's the role you've always played. It's this family dance. We, we know that song. We know the steps. And to change, it's going to be hard. It's going to be uncomfortable, but we won't be able to change it if we don't go through that process. So little by little, 
uphold those new boundaries and prom i promise you it'll start to feel better just take some time okay now we have another question question number two says hey katie i have suicidal ideation in my permanent chart since last year i also have quote unquote chronic suicidality written in there i'm also on six psych meds just for mdd and anxiety when i see new doctors i'm worried that they won't listen to my concerns about anything for the rest of my life due to my chart containing so much negative information i still have suicidal ideation but not like that specific day i was hospitalized this is the one reason i find having labels and a quote-unquote current health issues list so frustrating what can i do to prevent doctors from writing me off to be truthful we need to talk to our doctors and I know you're afraid they won't spend enough time with you or something like that, but we have to give them an opportunity to meet us where we're at. And so my encouragement for you would be before you have your next appointment to figure out how you want to verbalize this. An example of how I would consider communicating with my doctor would say some would be something to the effect of like, hey, Dr. Johnson, I know in my chart you're going to see that I had suicidal ideation and chronic suicidality. Can I give you a little context for that? Because I don't want you to think that that's something that I'm currently struggling with. And then you explain your scenario. Say something like, you know, um, I had a really tough time and I was hospitalized whenever this was, you know, like last year, it sounds like. So I did this last year. I was going through X, Y, or Z. I want you to know that I, I am doing much better. I still struggle with depression, but I don't have current thoughts of suicide. And I don't like that that's in my chart because I don't want people jumping to conclusions. So I just wanted to let you know where I'm at today. All we can do is advocate for ourselves because almost everything now is like electronic medical information. I'm sure all of your charts are going to be connected. And if once they, you make an appointment, they're going to look at your chart and they're going to see everything. And so this communication is done not only in the hopes of advocating for more for ourselves and getting the help that we need, but it also gives them an opportunity to make a note in your chart about that. And to also, they can make corrections to the chart. They can strike things out. It's still going to show that it was there. But they can say, spoke with patient, patient expressed um, no further symptoms of suicidality, seems to be doing much better on treatment regimen, you know, blah, 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 blah. They make their own notes. Even as a therapist, we change and make notes all the time. So know that they can totally do that. We just have to advocate for ourselves. We have to speak up and we have to be able to put language to what we went through and how we're doing now and kind of why we see that shift or what we think has been helpful. So practice, write it down, type it out, say it out loud to yourself, consider what it's going to feel like to say that, practice it and practice it till you can almost say it in your sleep so that even when the doctor comes in and you might feel a little bit like <gasps> anxious or like deer in the headlights, we can breathe and we can get through it because we've already said it to ourselves like a gazillion times. So that's really my encouragement. I hate that this happens. I hate that there's stigmas associated with this. I hate that this is on permanent record. And, and I have a lot of patients who don't even want me to diagnose them. They'll pay cash and not go through insurance so it doesn't go in their record. I've had all sorts of things like that. So I totally understand. I wish this was not the case. Someone should be able to assess you when you come in. Hey, I see this. Um, do you have any of those thoughts anymore? They should ask you. You you should be prompted. You shouldn't have to speak up. But unfortunately, that's just not where we're at. And all we can do is advocate for ourselves. We can't expect anybody else to do it for us. So let's practice and get that going. And then also, I'm curious about the six psych meds. I just, I always encourage my patients to ask about them. If you feel like they're working for you, awesome. If you feel like they aren't, speak up about it. Um, that just seems like 
for MDD and anxiety, that just seems like a lot for me. Now, again, I'm not judging it. I'm not saying that it's not beneficial or those aren't medications that you need. But I, whenever I have patients who are having a hard time um, and they're on a lot of different medications, I always want to ask and make sure that they feel like all their symptoms have been treated by those medications. So that's just a check-in from me to you. Make sure that you're feeling better from those because it sounds like you think there might be a little bit too, it might be a little bit too many as well. And so it's okay to ask and it's okay to see if you can titrate down on something. Talk with your psychiatrist. Do not do this without their recommendation. But if you feel like it's too much or you're numbed out or it's not helping, speak up and let them know. Okay. Moving on to question number three. This question says, hey, Katie, I'm heading home from college soon for break and I'm not so ready. It's like my family members are completely different people. And in a way, my entire house feels like a weird alternate reality with strangers in it. I know this probably sounds dramatic because these people are my family and I've lived with them in that house for almost my entire life, but it feels so foreign and wrong. When I'm home, I feel like I'm thrusted into their new lives that they've created without me and I don't belong there. But it's also like they don't know the now me, only the child version of me and are invading my life. I know that for them, they had to adapt a little, but their lives are still pretty much the same. And it almost makes me jealous and feel insignificant that they transition so easily not having me there. That's interesting. For me, it was my entire life that changed. New people, new focus, new state. I feel like I've outgrown them and that environment. I also find that I slip back into eating disorder patterns and thoughts there much easier than at school. Last time I was at home, I had to distance myself because I felt so suffocated at some points, which I know definitely hurt my parents' feelings. I know that's how life goes, but I'm afraid of hurting them. And they aren't very receptive to my boundaries anyways. I'm not sure what to do. So any tips would be much appreciated. I hope you have a wonderful holiday season. You as well. Now we have a comment on this, but let's just dive in. Um, the first piece here that I want to address is anybody else who finds themselves re- reverting back to an old version when they go home. This is incredibly common because we're like returning to the scene of the crime. And even if our home growing up wasn't traumatizing or overwhelming or stressful in any way, going back and staying in our room and having our parents be our parents there, right? We're not separate. We're together. They can try to implement rules because that's how it's always been when you live there. It can feel like a time warp and that's very normal. It's because we're essentially putting like almost everything is the same except for our age and the fact that we moved away, right? So of course we're going to revert back. It's very comfortable. It's almost like what I was talking about before that family dance that we know so well. When we get back home, we hear that music. We know that music really well. I know all the dance moves step by step. And when I go home for the holidays, I can just get right back into that dance. And I just start, boop, boop. Before I know it, I'm acting just like I did when I was 16, for better, for worse, right? So know that that's incredibly common. The only way to change it is to change yourself, which it sounds like you have. And if they aren't receptive to your boundaries, that doesn't really matter because the boundaries are what you do. Now, just hear me out. These are options. I'm not saying this is what you have to do, but I am suspicious about the eating disorder patterns because then that tells me that there's something in your family of up, like your family of origin or your upbringing that triggered your eating disorder and that that reason still exists there. And it might be that you feel insignificant or you're neglected. Your emotional needs aren't met. You might be reminded of the times that it was that way. Maybe there's more overt abuse happening, you know, uh, when we were growing up. So it might be something like that. But either way, the fact that your eating disorder patterns and thoughts come back with a vengeance tells me that it's really, you're triggered when you're there. And so the boundaries are going to be what you're going to do instead. 
not what we want them to do. Remember, we can't control them. They can not be receptive to your boundaries, but that doesn't mean you have to give in. Now, here are some examples of what we can do. We can communicate more with them about this. If anyone's receptive to conversations, I always encourage us to have them. And then we have to uphold those boundaries. Meaning, if you keep talking to me that way, if you keep acting like this, if you keep treating me like I'm not important or forgetting that I'm here or being rude or whatever it is, I don't know what it is. Um, you know, I think that, I think I'm gonna have to stay at a hotel or I'm gonna stay with my grandma or cousin or friend. You don't have to stay at that house. I know everybody just cringed. and was like, my mom would lose her shit if I didn't stay at her house. She might, but we can't control other people. And if it's really uncomfortable and toxic for us to be in that home, then the next best thing, aside from not going home at all, which it doesn't sound like that's what you wanna do, but if you don't, that's another option. But aside from that, then that might mean we stay with a grandma, a cousin, a friend, another family member. You have every right to do that. I have a friend of mine actually was just telling me that he can't go home for that long. He's done it. He goes, I've tried, I've tried, but it's a very rural community. He feels very fish out of water when he's there. It's very uncomfortable. The family dynamic is very toxic for him. And he only stays two nights. And I was like, wow, only two nights, huh? And he's like, that's all I can tolerate. I've told them I just can't be there. I love them, but I'd rather just visit little, little, he goes like two or three times a year just for a couple nights. He's like, I'd rather just visit them in little bits. But you have to communicate with them. Are they gonna love everything you do? No. But does that mean that we have to light ourselves on fire to keep them warm, right? That we have to put ourselves out to make them happy? We can do things for other people because we love them. And that might mean that we go home for Christmas at all. But that doesn't mean we have to stay with them. And it doesn't mean we have to stay with them for X amount of nights. Now, I know when you're coming back from school, it can be hard because you have like three weeks off. Maybe we spend time with a friend's house. Maybe we spend time with other family. Maybe one of our college friends, we go with them for New Year's or something, right? We're going to get to an age where we can do other things other than feel like we're kind of stuck at home, falling back into old patterns for like three or four weeks over the holidays. Those are just some ideas that I have. But remember, the boundaries are not what we want them to do. The boundaries are what we're going to do if they won't listen to us. But we have to try to communicate first. Also, I recognize that boundaries aren't, don't always need to be communicated. Sometimes, you know, like let's say uh, we have a mother or father who's a narcissist and they send us these like manipulative texts. A boundary would be not replying to those. Boundaries can be the lack of action or lack of communication as well. But then when they text something that's like normal and loving, then we can reply. And that's our boundary, right? So just consider what it is that you're going to do and what feels good for you at any level, right? There's no expectation coming from me. I don't want you to think I expect you to not go home or to go home or to stay or to not stay. Figure out what kind of works for you and what you think you could figure, like work with them. Like my friend who only goes home for two nights, he doesn't even stay at his parents' house because he's like, I can't, I stay with my sister. (laughs) So that's fair too. See what works for you and know that even if it makes them unhappy or they're kind of uh, guilt tripping you or, you know, maybe even manipulative as a result, that doesn't have to affect you. You can say, I love you, mom or dad, but, you know, it's really stressful for me and I prefer to stay with my sister or I prefer to stay with grandma or whoever, um, you know, because otherwise I feel like we argue or be honest, you know, they can be upset. Again, we can't control other people, but we can be as honest and open as as we feel we should be, and uphold the boundaries that help us feel safe, okay?
There was a comment on this as I feel similarly, like I've outgrown that environment. I don't feel ready to go home from college either, but for me, it's because I'm the one who's changed so much. I feel compelled to revert to a past version of myself when I go home and I struggle with being surrounded by memories of when I was younger. I know. As an add-on, how can I feel comfortable being my authentic current self at home while surrounded by people who I used to be close to, but that really don't know me anymore? It is interesting. I even feel that way a little bit too, that like they don't know me anymore. I grew up in a really small town and I've lived away from home for a longer period of time than I lived there. And I definitely changed, right? I decided to move away. I'm the one that changed. Um, if I'm being honest, because a lot of times, I don't know if I've said this on here, but I've talked about it on live streams recently. I don't like to give advice that I wouldn't take myself. And I don't like to give advice that I know isn't implementable. And from my own personal experience with this, I show up as myself. I revert back a little. Ooh, it's hard to fight that. It's hard to fight that urge. I try not to shame myself because of it. It's just natural. We're in this same environment that we were. And even though I haven't lived at home forever, it's easy to get back into that dance, right? But I find myself, um, I make time for things that I like to do, things that feel exciting and authentic to me. And I kind of push myself to do what I want, regardless of like, I don't know, like a family member's like, you know, knowing or judgmental gaze or like side eye or whatever. If they think it's cringe, I don't really care. I, I go there to be who I am. And I know that I'm going to have to weather some of the comments I'm going to get. Now, things that I've heard when I've gone home and been my new self, I would, I guess we can call it that, right? Creating a new self is um, people tease me saying I use too large of words like, oh, big fancy city girl, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, okay. And my response is, um, but you knew what it meant, right? You know, that's how I just try to hold. I try not to revert back. I try not to let them pull me in. I've even had people say like, you, you're talking a lot. Are you like nervous? I'm like, no, I just didn't. I wasn't sure of myself when I was younger. You haven't known me since I was 18. I'm much more sure of myself now. So, you know, we have to kind of consider it's going to take time. It's going to be a process for you. But I want you to know that this new authentic you is is you. And we have to we have to lean into it. We have to sit with it. And people are going to poke at it. People are going to make comments. But that doesn't have to change who we are. And we don't have to refer back. I know it is uncomfortable. I wish there was like an easy answer that I had for you. But I just encourage you to keep with that. I encourage you to make set aside time to do the things that you know are good for you. Like uh, when I went to my mom's recently, like I was doing artist way and I journal and um, I got up and brushed my teeth and she's like, oh, morning. And I was like, I'll be out in a bit. I'm going to do my journaling. She's like, okay. You just have to communicate. We have to tell them what we're doing, what they can expect from us. And then we just show up as ourselves because if they love us, they're going to love any version of us, right? As long as it's healthy and happy for us, put yourself in their position. A lot of the things that people are going to say are just done out of habit or out of old expectation because they haven't been around while we've changed. So do your best to show up as authentically you. You can even prepare ahead of time and kind of consider what you think they might say or the ways that you're going to want to feel that you want to act. And how can we alter the course to be authentic instead of reverting back without judgment, without shame, just, oh, I'm doing that again. I don't like that. Okay. I'm going to come out, I'm going to communicate, or I'm going to do my journaling, and I'm going to talk to my parents about it. We can do that kind of stuff. We're growing and changing, and that's amazing. I make a living off the belief that we can do that at any time in our life. So hang in there. They don't really know you anymore. That also, that last little bit of your question, but they don't really know me anymore. 
that's what I used to hang on to as a reminder of my authentic self. I was like, I don't really know who I am. I'm like a snake who's I've shed its skin and they honestly wouldn't recognize me anymore if, if I didn't come back here and didn't hang out with my family. Do you know what I mean? That's what I used to tell myself as a way of like proving that I've changed. So hang in there, remind yourself of that and that you, we get to become whoever we want to become. And isn't that a beautiful thing? Okay. Moving on to question number four. It says, hey, Katie, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? It says, I'm not sure if this will make sense or anyone else can relate to it, but is it normal to age regress during panic attacks or would this be something else? It's hard to explain, but I've been having what feels like panic attacks, but I come out of it feeling and acting like a small child, seeking comfort from things like blankets and stuffed animals. This makes it feel more like a flashback, but nothing during it would suggest that. Thanks for all that you do. Of course, um, when we feel overwhelmed, when we feel uh, maxed out, pushed into our stress response, we're in fight, flight, freeze, we're having a panic attack, we're dysregulated. When that happens, we can revert back to a younger self because we feel threatened and this is where we go to when we need comfort and for you i would i'm curious just if you were my patient i would ask this i'd be curious about your childhood and seeing if there's any inner child work there that needs to be done meaning were there needs in our childhood that didn't get met that we've never really talked about and is and we needed more comfort is that why we go back to this i always have to be curious about regression because it can happen for a lot of reasons it can happen because of trauma. It can happen because of intense dysregulation, which can be a part of trauma, but doesn't have to be. Intense dysregulation, which I think is what's happening here. Um, also, we can revert back when there's like work to be done. And what I mean by that is when we regress, it's like our brain is giving us another chance to process through that or to manage what went what happened does that make sense it's almost like we didn't get an opportunity at that time to do it so our brain goes back and tries to give us another opportunity to consider and maybe again you'd have to answer these questions for yourself but this might be an indicator that when you were younger you didn't get the comfort that you needed or on the flip side when you were younger was the only time you got the comfort that you needed and as you got older you got less and less comfort and so we go back because that's where the comfort lives you can see one or the other. And I don't know if either of those resonate with you, but I would be curious, not judgmental about that to see if that's why this is happening. Because truly what we know is is happening like psychologically is you're getting completely dysregulated, pushed into your stress response. And your reaction to that is to go back to a childlike self and to and that's how you feel comforted. That's like the only way you can kind of soothe your system. So this is a soothing thing that you're doing. It's a grounding technique. It's a way for you to come back to yourself. I don't think it's harmful or hurtful in any way, but since it's kind of maybe bothering you, that's why you're asking about it, then we have to be curious about it, why it's there. And remember being curious, but not judgmental. So where do we think it's coming from? Did any of that resonate with you? Let me know. But that in there somewhere are your answers, okay? Let's move on to question number five. This question says, hey, Katie, um, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Says, I was wondering, why is it so hard for me to accept and process positive emotions? Interesting. Last week was my birthday and my students were super excited and most brought a picture, handmade card, flowers, small gifts. My fellow teachers and staff were super nice and I was super uncomfortable with all of that attention. Interesting. I wanted a happy cry, but I couldn't. Also, I've had people come observe me multiple times and leave positive compliments, and I just can't accept that what they wrote is true. Am I the only one who suffers from this? No. 
not by any stretch of the imagination. Positive emotions can be just as scary, overwhelming, or uncomfortable as negative ones. And I'd even argue that there aren't positive or negative, but we we do that. We categorize emotions for some reason. And some like happiness, excitement, love, joy, get put in the positive bucket. And negative ones like anger, disappointment, irritability, those get put into the negative. But all emotions have a place and space and a right to be there. And they're really not negative or positive. They're just indicators of something going on. They're like telling us the story of what we're experiencing. So all that in mind, positive emotions can feel scary when we're not used to them, especially if there's any abuse or neglect in our past. If good things are happening to us, we can feel like we're waiting for the other shoe to drop. Like, hmm. I don't know about this. I don't know what to expect with this because I don't experience this ever. Or when we were growing up, if, you know, maybe our parents were emotionally abusive. If we came home from school all excited and our mom or dad was in like a bad mood and they were like, shut up, stop making that noise. You know, they said something terrible to us. We can feel like us being happy and expressing that is only going to set us up to be harmed more. So we have some connection, some association with positive emotions that isn't what I would call, you know, like healthy or normal, right? It's Well, it's normal for us, but it's not what the, the healthy thing should be. And so that could be why it's hard for you to accept and process them because either A, you were never allowed to have them, B, if you did have them, you had to pretend they didn't exist, or um, I guess C would be that when you allow yourself to experience them, you're just waiting for the other shoe to drop. And it makes you feel like your guard's down. And I find my my hypothesis here, if I was like a betting person, I would say, I'd assume there's some trauma in your past. And the thought of letting your guard down makes you feel very at risk. And so it's really, really, really hard for you to allow those positive emotions to exist because it makes you feel really vulnerable to some kind of hurt. That's where I'd probably put most of my money. The other thought could be that you have such poor self-esteem, maybe because of emotional abuse or neglect in the past or a uh, possibly really shitty relationship or just nasty self-talk. So much so that when people tell you nice things, your brain's like, absolutely not. It doesn't believe any of that. And so, yeah, but I really think it must be the other one because it's hard for you to accept it. It's hard for you to process it. it. You feel overwhelmed by it and super uncomfortable. And the discomfort really tells me that it, because we never really got it. And so we don't really know what to do with it. So hang in there. The way to overcome this is really once we figure out where it's coming from, right? If it is from childhood emotional neglect or abuse, then we're going to have to talk that through. We're going to have to process that abuse or that trauma. If we think it's coming from the fact that we talk such shit to ourselves all day, every day, then we're going to have to track those thoughts and we're going to have to bridge statement them a little bit, saying things that aren't quite as negative, but are slightly more positive to move our brain out of that negative rut. All of those things you know, it just depends on where the where it comes from. So there could be many ways for us to get out of it. We just have to figure out where it comes from first. Okay. Final question. Question number six says, hey, Katie, I grew up with parents who never comfort, comforted me as a child. There is not one memory where I can recall my uh, where my parents held me or even just asked me how I was doing. As a 30-year-old woman now, sympathy is nauseating to me because we're not used to it. It physically feels like my skin crawls whenever someone expresses sympathy towards me. Even last year when I experienced a pregnancy loss. Are these two things related? 100%. Thanks for everything that you do. 
Of course, yes, these are related. When we don't get certain things as a child, that can affect our attachment. And attachment can go in a bunch of different ways. And most of us will have different symptoms or signs from different forms of attachment. But my guess here would be that you have more of an avoidant attachment, um, that you prefer to know more about other people rather than them knowing too much about you. It makes you feel too vulnerable. So you like to keep people kind of at arm's length. And so anybody sympathizing, uh, empathizing with you, someone offering you support and showing up for you feels very uncomfortable because we've never received it. And yeah, so that that would be my guess as to where it's coming from. It's something from the fact that because your parents did not comfort you. So you never get that. So you don't know what that looks like. And so you go out into the world thinking if someone offers you that, that that's weird and that something's wrong, right? We have nothing to compare that to. We're not like, oh, this makes sense from the blueprint that my parents gave me. This is what people do when they love you. No, we have this blueprint. We're like, no, uh, they never comfort. This person's comforting me. I don't know what to do with this. It's essentially just very foreign. And so the way to overcome this obviously is to talk about being neglected as a child, what came up for you. How did you feel when you were little? It might be some inner child work. I have a workshop on my website um, at katiemorton.com. You can check out the inner child workshop. That could be really helpful. But you have to get back in touch with that younger you to be able to offer her a little understanding, a little support, and a lot of comfort. And it's going to take time for you to get comfortable with accepting that comfort. So, so the sympathy doesn't feel so, ugh. but it's because it's unnatural for you. You know what I mean? It's like, I don't know. You could also say like if you grew up in a family where nobody ever raised their voice, there were no arguments, nobody fought. Ugh. Then if you are around a family that like shouts and fights all the time, but it doesn't, it's not like a fight like you think of a fight. It's a fight like that's just how they communicate. And then they're fine. They sit down to dinner, blah, 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 like nothing happened. That's going to be extremely overwhelming to your system. You're going to be super uncomfortable when you're there. You're going to think that like everybody hates each other. Blah, it's going to be terrible because you're not used to it. And that's the same here. You never got sympathy. You never got compassion or comfort. And so when someone offers it to you, you're like, what is this? I don't like it. Uh, I don't know what to do with this because we haven't learned. So you got to give yourself time to heal that younger you. Reminder that she does and is deserving of care, compassion, sympathy. And then slowly but surely as we heal that, we can start incorporating some of this and trying our best to you could even journal now about what comes up for you when people do it, like try to comfort you. And why is it so dysregulated? We can dig into that and learn about it that way. And then what could, what kind of comfort do we think we could tolerate? Are there certain people we can tolerate it from? Could we offer some to ourselves a little bit? I don't know. We have to start thinking about it, right? What could it look like? How could I get comfortable with it? And what are some things that maybe I could do or I could allow other people to do that would feel not as terrible? And we just work our way there. Remember, it's not all or nothing. It's baby steps. And as we incorporate more care, more sympathy, more compassion for ourselves, how do we manage the ick that can come up with it? What does it trigger in us? What thoughts? What process? Allow yourself to explore. Be a detective about it and see what you come up with, okay? Thank you all so much for listening. I hope you're having a happy, happy holidays. I love you all. Have a wonderful week. Do your homework and I'll see you next time.